Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. I'm your host, Corey Horn. If you lived in a city any time in 2nd century BCE to the year of 70 CE, the likelihood of us having archaeological records and evidence of your lifestyle, religious practices, and culture is rather promising. However, if you lived in a rural area or village, there's a good chance all of that information is still sitting under a couple thousand years of earth. So over the years, uh, we've sort of accumulated a lot more knowledge about ancient cities than we have in the rural areas. But you know, it, it could very well be that just as many people were living in rural settlements and rural villages than ancient cities. So we might not be getting the full picture. This is Greg Gardner associate professor and holder of the Diamond Chair in Jewish Law and Ethics in the Department of Classical, Near Eastern, and Religious Studies at the University of British Columbia and a fellow at the Frankel Institute for Judaic Studies. Gardner's research explores religious and ethnic diversity in ancient Israel, particularly in the Second Temple period, during the Hellenistic and early Roman period from the 2nd century BCE to the year of 70 BCE. This work is closely tied to the excavation project at Korvat Midras, which is a site in Israel about 40 kilometers southwest of Jerusalem. And this project raises questions about how we identify religious and ethnic identity of ancient peoples in the archaeological record. Gardner is partnering with Dr. Arit Peleg Barkat of the Institute of Archaeology of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. The book project is called Material Judaism, uh, and it engages with this sort of uh, newly developing field called material religion that integrates texts and archaeology into understanding how religion uh, works. Ancient Palestine during the Second Temple era features significant ethnic and religious diversity. But why was ancient Palestine so diverse in this era? And who was there? And why? The land itself is sort of a crossroads it sort of sits between, sits on a, a land bridge, so to speak, between Egypt and, let's say, the rest of the Middle East. And you have a lot of different groups coming in and out of this land area over the millennia. The Hebrew Bible describes ancient Israelites and Philistines and Canaanites and all of these different people sort of competing and sometimes aligning. But this remains the case up to and through the Greco-Roman era where many groups developed and grew off of each other, living in this key area of the world. My primary area of focus is on the Jews, but we also have many other groups like the Samaritans and the Idumeans, who were this group that sort of lived in and near the site of Korvat Midras, the site of the excavation. We have Greek colonists. We have Nabataeans coming in from the south. One of Gardner's key questions is, can we distinguish findings in the archaeological record? Or... Are we just reinforcing our own assumptions about what each of these people would have created based on the material record that's left? A key aspect of the research project is trying to understand what's happening outside of cities. So cities are usually the places where we have the most amount of information. Literary sources are often written by individuals who are very familiar with city life. They tend to be uh, written by people who are highly educated, Flavius Josephus and people like that. One of the aspects of this research is to understand better what's happening in these rural areas, 
the diversity and geographic placement of Hervat Madras makes it an excellent candidate for this research. It's significant for a number of reasons. First of all, it's a very large village, whereas most villages are very small. It's interesting that it could have been a particularly wealthy village. We're, we're not sure. That's one aspect of it, and that it's, it's somewhat unusual and may have left more of a material record than, than villages often do. Another aspect of this is the group, the Idumeans. These people who lived in that region likely lived in Hervat Madras up until the 2nd century BCE, and they have a rather unusual story. This group that came in from southern Jordan, they're traced back to the Edomites, who are known from the Hebrew Bible, and they moved from southern Jordan, perhaps in the 6th century BCE, into this area of Idumea, which is just south of Judea. And they probably absorbed a lot of tenets of Jewish culture and Jewish identity, uh, even though they were polytheists, they worshipped many gods, but they may have absorbed certain tenets of Judaism. Later on, the Hasmoneans come along. This is the family that's famously known as the Maccabees. So the Maccabees fought against the Greeks and the Hellenized Jews to reclaim the Jerusalem temple, famous in the 160s BCE. And that began a period that's often known as the Second Jewish Commonwealth, a period of Jewish self-rule. They really conquered the, so not just Jerusalem, but as they moved south and they came upon the Idumeans, this is one of the few, if perhaps the only instance where we have Jews who were trying to forcibly convert non-Jews. And the Idumeans were given sort of a choice either to convert or to flee. Now, it's very likely that many of the Idumeans already considered themselves to be Jewish in many ways. So this was not much of a choice. But for others, they left. And we do have evidence of abandonment from the site. The site itself really plays into a lot of the questions that we have regarding ethnic identity. What does it mean to have a a particular ethnic and religious identity? Was it a solid thing? Were you one thing and not another thing? Could you, were you either Jew or Idumean? Or was there some middle ground? So we have all these questions. We don't have a lot of answers yet. But that's one of the reasons why the site is so interesting. The hope here is that through excavation and through accumulating more material evidence and material sources, we can better understand some of these really complex issues. It's easy to wonder how much information can really be gathered about an entire people group by a stone vessel or a bath. Has the discovery shown a different light on the preconceived ideas regarding this location or people groups that have passed through it? I I would say for our our preconceived reality of what we think was going on is perhaps pretty muddled. Um, it's, It's constantly evolving. It's constantly changing as we uncover new sources, as we excavate further. Archaeologists tend to gravitate toward excavating cities. They also excavate toward monumental public buildings. People want to look at the big synagogue or the big church, the big Roman temple, which is extremely important. But the aspects of daily life are often overlooked and not excavated or have been less excavated over the years. In the past few decades, that started to change, that archaeologists have been looking to see to better understand what domestic daily life for the common people uh, sort of looked like. So at Horvat Midras, we do have a few monumental tombs that we've been excavating around, but we're also really trying to focus on the sort of daily life of common individuals. Current excavation might be a Roman temple, but included in this are a few residential complexes. One of the things that they're trying to figure out 
is if there are items that indicate the religious or ethnic character of the individual and what those finds would look like if they came upon them. Stone vessels, for example, are commonly thought to be indicators of Jewish residents, and that's because stone vessels are impervious to ritual impurity, according to biblical law. So, we haven't found any stone vessels yet, so that's, that could be interesting. Maybe we just haven't found, found them yet. One piece that was discovered in the project is called a mikvah. A mikvah is an immersion pool where one would dip oneself fully immersed and rid themselves of ritual impurity. Immersion pools are common still in synagogues today. It's not clear, though, whether these pools are for ritual purposes or just for bathing purposes, or maybe even for water storage purposes. And to what extent have scholars sort of presumed that when they find a ritual pool, that that is evidence of Jews and Judaism living there? And to what extent is that just circular logic? This pool must be evidence of Jews, therefore we knew Jews lived here, and, and, and so on. Another thing they tend to find is artifacts that have symbols on them. One of the items they found is a ceramic oil lamp with a decoration on it that appears to be a menorah, the seven-branch candelabrum that was once in the Jerusalem temple. This is usually considered to be a sign of Jews and Judaism. We also found oil lamps that were decorated with images of uh, animals and other living creatures. And that is often thought to be in violation of the second commandment in the Hebrew Bible. So the question is, was everyone necessarily following the Hebrew Bible to the letter? (laughs) Were they? And these are, you know, this is evidence of both Jews and non-Jews, polytheists living in close proximity. So there's a lot of, a lot of questions, but not, not uh, a lot of answers yet. So it stands to reason that there was a lot of intermingling both conceptually, ideologically, as well as biologically. This also pokes at another presumption about what people thought about rural living. There had been this understanding, and perhaps it's based on the sources, and perhaps it's based on people's preconceptions of what sort of modern cities look like. And the idea was that cities are cosmopolitan and diverse, whereas Villages tend to be sort of monolithic and occupied by one religious ethnic group or another, but not more than one or two. And that's just not the case. It seems the case is fluidity, both in terms of who was living there as well as the people themselves. People seeing their own identity in a fluid term. It's kind of hard to tell. (laughs) We find an oil lamp that has sort of an image of a living being. Is this a Jew who didn't care about the second commandment? Is this a Jew who cared about the second commandment, but but was applying it in a way we didn't expect? Is this a non-Jew? Is this somebody who thought of themselves as something in between? We're not sure. (laughs) One of the main factors in this fluidity of culture comes from the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans came to power on a call to arms that said, we need to stand up for Judaism against Hellenism. Then they put forward this idea that they were the representatives of Judaism and they were going to fight off the evil foreign Hellenism. That's sort of, you know, the myth of Hanukkah, the holiday of Hanukkah, that it's Jews versus Greeks. That's the propaganda, essentially, that the Hasmoneans put forward. But when you dig beneath the surface a little bit, Hasmoneans themselves were very Hellenized. And when you say Jews versus Greeks, you're talking about Maccabees and Hasmoneans versus 
sort of Greeks, but also against many Jews who were thoroughly Hellenized. As we move beyond the first generation of Maccabees to the leaders of the dynasty throughout the years, we see more and more how thoroughly Hellenized the Maccabees themselves were. When they come down to a site like Horvat Midras and basically put forward this line of either convert or leave, you wonder what's really going on. Is this about Judaism fighting off what they perceive as foreign influence and Hellenistic Hellenizers and that sort of thing? Or is this really uh, just about political and social and economic and military power expanding the borders of the country? This was a very significant period. The Second Jewish Commonwealth lasted for roughly 100 years from the time of Hanukkah to the year 63 BCE, when Rome started to conquer the whole Near East and began to back certain rulers in ancient Palestine, effectively ending Jewish self-rule. One of these rulers that they backed is a fellow by the name of Herod the Great. And Herod's pretty widely known. He's mentioned in the New Testament. He's also known as a great builder. He doubled the size of the, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And he gave the Temple Mount roughly the, the same size and shape that it remains to this day. Herod was backed by the Romans, and he was a powerful ruler with a mind for expansion. He was Jewish, and he was also Idumean. He was Jewish because he was Idumean. He may play a role in this site as well. When he comes to power, either he or his descendants, it seems, refounded the village. So the village was abandoned after the Hasmoneans came down, and then it was refounded probably in the late 1st century BCE, early 1st century CE, under Herodian rule. And Herod may have had a special connection to this site uh, because he was Idumean of descent. It could be that Herod set this land up for his family and friends to have their own tombs and monumental architecture. This is the bridge of how we get from the Hasmoneans, who are key figures in Jewish history, to Herod the Great, who is the key figure in Jewish and even early Christian history. All of this history ties directly to Gardner's growing area of scholarship called material religion. As scholars who are working on it are working on all areas of religious studies, from modern Christianity to just about anything. And it's this combination of visual cultural studies, sort of art history and anthropology and religious studies. And the idea is that not everything that is meaningful or important to a religion is written down. And objects play a really important role in the creation of religious identity and religious expression, not only the objects themselves, but also how these objects are used. Bodily acts are performance, or what you do with an object. For example, every Friday night is marked by the kindling of two candles that are held in valuable metal stick candle holders. In many ways, this is a very powerful symbol. The lighting of these lights marks the onset of the Sabbath. And there is a prayer or a blessing that goes along with it. But it's these physical acts using physical objects that convey more than just the words and a text itself. I'm trying to apply some of that to ancient Judaism, trying to understand how all these pieces work together uh, or don't work together. The goal here would be to find some pieces in the ground that indicate some form of religious identity or religious practice. Then, from those ideas, get a better understanding of who these people really were. One of the most amazing places to see what has already been found through excavation 
is called the Kelsey Museum of Archaeology. Opened in 1891, located on the University of Michigan Central Campus in Ann Arbor, Michigan, the museum is a unit of the University of Michigan's College of Literature, Science, and Arts. One particular area that I, I find very interesting is that the University of Michigan conducted an excavation in 1931 in Palestine, while it was still under uh, British rule, at the site of Sepphoris. Sepphoris is a site in the sort of northern portion of Israel in the Galilee, and it's probably the area in which some of the earliest rabbinic texts were written and took shape. This plays an important role in Jewish history because these rabbinic texts continue to be studied in traditional Jewish schools. To this day, they are considered texts of Jewish law. A lot of those texts took shape and contain traditions that date back to the same era that the University of Michigan had been excavating in 1931. Many of the finds from Michigan's excavations at Sepphoris, this really important city in the Galilee, really wealthy city in the Galilee, many of those are still at the Kelsey Museum. I think quite a bit to be learned from them. They've been Portions of them have been published, but quite a bit has remained unpublished. The museum also holds a great collection of coins from ancient Palestine. This allows you to track the ancient history of the country through the coin finds. If you have an opportunity, we welcome you to visit. If you're anything like me, you're wondering, hey, we found all of these items, but why is it actually important? Why does it matter? Earliest stages when Judaism was really beginning to take shape into the religion that we know it today, the sort of transition from the Second Temple period into the early rabbinic period is a key period of transition. People who are interested in the study of early Christianity as well. The early Jesus movement, of course, grew from individuals who were Jewish. So understanding the world that they came from. Religious studies are still mostly focused on written text. And Gardner is trying to show, along with the scholarship on material religion, how religious objects and performance tied to material play an important role. But there's also something else. Excitement of discovery. We don't really know what we're going to find until we start digging beneath the surface. But that's always exciting. And I think even people who are not necessarily interested in ancient history, ancient religions, can easily get caught up in the excitement of discovery and revealing of things that were previously beneath the ground and unknown. The excavation at Hervat Madras is scheduled to resume in the summer of 2022 with students from the University of British Columbia and the students from Hebrew University of Jerusalem. A lot of planning and careful research has to be done ahead of time, so the team has a sense of where they'll be digging. They need to confirm that people were actually living there. The remaining efforts of this excavation will be focused on places they already started. Pretty confident that we're going to keep going and keep finding stuff. But of course, unexpected things happen. We've yet to come across an area that where there was nothing, but making adjustments along the way is always uh, part of the, uh, the experience. You've been listening to Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer is Scott Spector, you can find and subscribe to Frankly Judaic anywhere you get podcasts. If you like the show, please leave a five-star review. Thanks for listening.